The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, for those of you who weren't here uh, Sunday for Sunday morning service. I just want to reiterate uh, how good it is to be back at NBC and uh, to have the opportunity to share with you uh, this week. One of the uh, habits we're in in terms of the culture of Westminster Chapel is uh, we don't call our worship uh, team a worship team or a worship band because we felt that that would mislead us into thinking that when preaching or the reading of the word happens, we're not worshiping. Uh, and uh, I want to encourage you to think about our time this evening as an act of worship. You know, the use of our minds in reflection and meditation on God's Word is also an act of worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so part of our worship of God is the use of our minds in reflecting, meditating, and applying His Word to our lives. Some of you may have been here this morning for the session with Michael Hakin, uh, who I had the pleasure of uh, joining me last year as well. It's great to have him with me again this year. He's a good friend, a scholar, and a gentleman, and I hope that you will uh, avail yourself of his ministry in the mornings and also of his books, uh, which are available in the bookshop. I've read a number of them myself, and they will be a great blessing to you. So if you've not been to one of his magisterial topical surveys in the morning, I encourage you to come to one of those, uh, or all of them actually, this week and be encouraged and blessed. Now, I'm dealing with the, the Gospel of John uh, this week, and we began on Sunday, if you weren't here, in the prologue of John's Gospel. And uh, although I wasn't absolutely certain initially what I was going to do tonight, I am going to do one more session on John's prologue because of the number of conversations it provoked afterwards. And uh, my habit during the week, Monday through Friday, is to leave time for, well, theoretically, leave time for um, Q&A. So when I'm uh, done speaking, I will open it up for questions, um, but we'll, we'll wind up in plenty of time for the campfire and the hymn sing. So that if you have questions that uh, come to mind as you're uh, listening tonight, just scribble them down on a piece of paper so that you can uh, bring them up in our Q&A, and I will do my best to bring a response. I know we're not used to asking questions in church. Um, that's our loss, really. The uh, early church used to do this. Uh, the synagogue used to do this, that the preacher, the teacher would often at the end of the message open uh, up the time for questions from the congregation from time to time. Uh, we do that uh, at Westminster, and I think it's a, good, it's a good habit. Let's turn to the Gospel of John then, and uh, one more session on the prologue, and then we'll move into the discourses and one or two of the signs as the week unfolds. John chapter 1, and beginning at verse 1. I'm just going to take us through to verse 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God 
whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light that came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. I want to talk uh, tonight about the word of light and life. On Sunday, we uh, considered the personal nature of the word, that he is a relational and all-personal word. For those of you who can remember and stretch your minds back to Sunday, we taxed ourselves considering the Trinity, which is obviously a very difficult subject to deal with in terms of its comprehensibility, but we saw that the nature of God was relational. The Father being eternally the Father in relationship to the Son, who has always been eternally the Son. And therefore, we worship a personal, relational God. And we saw how also we are persons made in the image of God. I want to consider this evening how Christ is not just an all-personal, all-relational word, but He is the word of light and life. These are John, uh, the Apostle John's two favorite terms in his gospel. He loves these two themes, light and life. And he comes back to them again and again. In fact, the word life comes up 36 times in John's gospel. Life for John then, as he speaks about the word, does not exist in its own right or by its own inherent power. Life doesn't just pop into being, neither does it just sustain itself in terms of some inherent powers in nature. Rather, it's created and sustained by the Word. John tells us here at the beginning of his prologue that all true life is in him. Light and life are found in Jesus. Now, if that's true, what I want to tease out this evening is that if Christ is light and life, and you turn away from that which is light and life, what have you got? Not a trick question. Darkness and death in every area. And that's the result, actually. That's what I hope to show this evening, that that is always the result of turning from the Word who is life and light. You'll recall what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, about His Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In John 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. One of the misunderstandings, of course, of Christianity when the non-believer looks at it is they think it's a scheme to rob one of life and joy and actually to imprison you in some sort of restrictive form of misery. But John tells us that this life was also the light of men. Not just in the sense of Christ bringing new revelation. You know, we've always used light in the English language to symbolize uh, something coming to light. We say it in the context of very common phrases. If you watch uh, cartoons, you often see a cartoon character, a light bulb comes on over their head and they've had a new idea. It's, that's not only what is being conveyed here, that Christ was revelation, but also that he is the very fountainhead of all understanding. So the psalmist tells us in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. 
I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about the sun being, Christ being like the sun which illuminates everything else. You don't light a candle on a bright sunny day to light up outside, do you? Those are all derivative lights. In your light, in this light of Christ, we see light. It's only through this ultimate light of Christ. And when we turn to the book of Genesis even, the theme of light, again, is there immediately. Let there be light. It's the first thing God says. To turn away from it then, the word of life and light has significant consequences. What is darkness after all? Darkness is the absence of light, isn't it? You turn the light out, you've got darkness. And the key thread throughout John's gospel is this antithesis that exists between light and darkness. They don't coexist together. They're not bedfellows. They can't cuddle up with one another and have fellowship with each other. What fellowship does darkness have with light? None whatsoever. There's a continual conflict then with these two themes in John's gospel. And Jesus stated that the ground for people's condemnation, John 3 verse 19, is that they love darkness rather than light. So John comes back again and again and again to this theme of this antithesis between Christ, the light, the word of life and light, and the darkness. And we see John telling us that the darkness is not able to overcome the light. In fact, you'll find some translations render it uh, overcome. Others comprehend. I think both are implied. That's why the translators struggle with that one. That the darkness is unable to overcome, overpower, or fully comprehend the light that is in Jesus Christ. I think John had both things in mind. Darkness also symbolizes throughout Scripture the realm of sin, the realm of rebellion, the realm of Satan. So Scripture speaks, doesn't it, of the powers of darkness or the hour of darkness. So you have this constant interplay between these two ideas. It entails the whole notion of man's fall and rebellion against God where he seeks to be his own God. And because of this, he falls into a form of spiritual blindness. Jesus' signs of healing the blind, of course, was pointing toward not just his restoration of his creation and the elimination of such diseases, but also the spiritual enlightenment which takes place when we are born again and regenerated. That that blindness caused by sin is removed. But the fall has left this darkness of doubt and error and alienation from God. And it's affected every aspect of our being. We're told in Scripture that the enemy has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And strongholds have therefore been established in the minds of people. As we've turned away from the Word who is life and light, 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that false knowledge, speculations have set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And we're called upon to take every thought captive and lead it in obedience Christ. Those who walk in the light also walk in life. So these two themes are interrelated. None of us can actually escape the fact that we all have to live by some kind of light or another. What do I mean by this? 
Well, we all build our lives on some sort of foundation or another. We use some source of light, some word. In fact, I picked up on this at the very end of my message on Sunday to illuminate, to help us understand our lives. Some source of light. That's the question I want to deal with now. What is the source of light for us? What is the source of light to the non-believer? Nobody is an island. You're the product of multiple circumstances, multiple influences, multiple causes. You are not just a being who has chosen this, that, or the other at your own will. None of you, for example, chose when you would be born. None of you chose uh, who your parents would be, what you would look like, what your proclivities would be. In fact, your gifts, your potentiality, all of these things, your nationality, your gender, none of these things were chosen by you. You're a conditioned being. This is what John is telling us at the outset of his gospel. You've been conditioned by many factors. This means, of course, that we're conscious that we are creatures. We're dependent beings. This is the problem, of course, for the atheist the whole time. And I have the dubious privilege of dealing with atheists a lot in the context of debate. I've got four debates coming up, two at the end of in the fall this year and two more next year in Canada and in the U.S. The basic problem for the atheist is he knows and he or she knows that they are a creature. But they don't want to acknowledge their creatures. You're in a real bind when you are a conditioned and dependent being, but you want to deny that you're a conditioned and dependent being. And you want to find some source of independent light and truth. Everybody around you in your life, members of your family, your children, your neighbors, your work colleagues, fellow students, everybody lives in terms of some source of light or another. Some source of authority that they use to illuminate, to understand their lives. Might be Oprah, might be Jerry Springer, might be uh, a professor, a teacher a journalist, a historian, a scientist, whatever. We're totally dependent because we depend on others all of the time for true understanding. We depend on guides for true understanding in our lives. Our knowledge is finite. It's like a drop in the ocean compared to who God is. And so authority plays a central role in our lives. Light, and I'm linking these two ideas now, light and truth, the word, and the concept of authority. All of us link these ideas in one way or another, and it means that all of our lives, whoever we are, has a religious character. All of us vest certain persons with authority. Most of the things we believe, we don't prove directly in any way. I mean, how many of you are absolutely certain that you're parents are your parents, probably most of you. How many of you have had your DNA checked to make sure of it? No one that I can see in here. So the rest of you are going on authority then. Pictures, the word of your parents, the word of relatives, and so forth. Some of the most basic things we, we accept in life, we believe on the basis of authority. We all view 
life then in terms of some sort of religious light. It is religious. I was debating with an atheist ex-Baptist pastor. I don't know what relevance that might have. Um, on the uh, John Oakley show, on a culture war show in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he was denying that as a humanist, he was religious. Amazing how blunt some people's thinking can be. I was trying to explain to him on air that he is a religious creature. We all are religious creatures. It doesn't matter who we are. You might be an atomic scientist here, but let me just tell you how your religious beliefs will affect what you believe about even atoms. Now, don't worry, I'm not a mathematician, neither am I a physicist, so let me just give you this in layman's terms. But I want you to, I'm taking a couple of examples because I want you to see how the light that we live by determines what we will believe about certain things. Some of you will have heard of the uh, scientist Ernst Mack. He was the guy after which we, we had the, we named the speeds of sound. Mach 1, Mach 2, you know when you fly really fast, you hear that very loud thunderous noise and the sound barrier is broken. He was a well-known scientist whose ideas won over a lot of philosophers and scientists actually forming a whole movement in the first 70 years of the 20th century. Mack did not believe atoms existed. He didn't believe in the existence of atoms. Now, when I was in school, I learned about, you know, a nucleus and a proton and an electron and those kind of things. And apparently the more uh, advanced you go in your study of atomic theory, the more contradictory your new learning becomes in terms of what you first thought you understood about atoms. But Ernst Mack didn't believe that atoms existed at all. He says they were a useful fiction because they enabled us to make certain predictions about reality. But he didn't believe that subatomic particles existed as a physicist. And many scientists and philosophers followed in his train of thought. Why did he believe that? I'll tell you why. Because he believed he was committed to a religious idea about the world that all of our experience is just sensory perception. You're just a bundle of sensations. That's all you are. You're not a creature made in the image of God. You're not enlightened by the Word of God. You're just... uh, like a camera. Your mind's like a camera. It takes a picture of something, but all you've got is the film. So you don't know whether the film bears any resemblance to the reality. So he said, well, that being the case, we don't have a real copy of the world. This is a, I'm not going to go into the detail, but this is a philosophical school of empiricism. And he believed that religiously, So he felt that even laws of nature were just psychological projections, just something uh, your mind projected onto reality. He said this about atoms and physics. This is what he said. To us investigators, the concept of soul is irrelevant and a matter for laughter. But matter is an abstraction of exactly the same kind. We know as much about the soul as we do of matter. This is a leading scientist in the 20th century. There was Albert Einstein, of course, who disagreed with Mac. I was reading one of Albert Einstein's essays over the summer. Thankfully, it wasn't a technical paper, but um, he disagreed with Mac about this because he thought that 
Mathematical and logical relations are independent of our senses. He couldn't prove that. He admitted he couldn't prove that. But he thought that because it enabled us to explain reality, there must be some degree of reality to the idea of atoms. And then there was a guy called Heisenberg. Anybody heard of the uncertainty principle? Yeah? Some of you? Got nothing to do with, uh, you know, Baptist committees or anything like that. It's to do with uh, <clears throat> atoms. And uh, the, this has to do with looking at the world at the, the, macro, the macro and then at the micro at the quantum level. And at the quantum level, he noticed that things were unpredictable, seemed uncertain. He disagreed with both uh, Einstein and Mac about atoms because he was committed to yet a different picture of the world. Einstein himself didn't believe in a personal God, relational God. I shall tell you why later. Heisenberg, though, was committed to the notion that everything would eventually be able to be explained by mathematics. That uh, atoms were just mathematically, stati- statistically probable entities. They weren't uh, actual entities as we understand, you know, solid pulpits. Now, <clears throat> I'm taking, I took though that idea, you can talk about the same actually in mathematics. We don't even know what numbers are if we deny the word of God. Philosophers have always disagreed about the most basic thing about numbers. You might say 2 plus 2 is 2, but uh, we don't actually know, according to the philosophers, what a number is. Depends what you believe. It depends what light you use to understand the world. Who is the word? Who is the source of authority that speaks in and for us? I'm not really that bothered, honestly, what's exactly true about atoms. Uh, Democritus, the ancient Greek philosopher, thought that uh, atoms existed. Mac didn't. I'm not really that bothered either way. I believe there's a real world out there, of course, because the Bible tells me there is. The Word tells me that there is. But which school of experts are you going to subscribe to? I think I'm specifically thinking about some of you young people who are here tonight who are smart and at university and so forth, and you may be being told all kinds of things by your teachers and professors about Christianity and religion in general. Well, they're all dependent on authorities as well, every professor you've ever listened to. They're using some light to illuminate their world as well. And this brings us to the important teaching of Scripture about the infallibility of God's Word. The Word that John's prologue speaks of. You know, when I was growing up, going through school, and uh, sixth form college, our system in England is slightly different, fellow students often expressed to me their incredulity that I could actually believe that a book contained the Word of God and that that word was infallible. That, uh, and you know, you understand what I mean by infallible, that it, it's faultless. That God's word does not change. You know, if, if God's word isn't infallible, then it might be true this week, but next year when you come to NBC, it's not true anymore. That's not the kind of God we serve, is it? But the infallibility concept struck my uh, colleagues uh, as fellow students as ridiculous. How could I believe in the infallibility of a book? And I used to find that difficult when I was a younger man, younger than I am now. 
And I thought that was difficult to handle, but I've since understood something very important, that whenever you deny the doctrine of infallibility to God and to his word, you don't deny it, you just replace it with the infallibility of something else. Because everybody has to live in terms of a word, an authority, a source of light. If you deny it to Christ, you just transfer it somewhere else. Jesus unequivocally claims a totally authoritative and binding word. He saw it in Matthew 4, verse 4. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. Life isn't sustained by food, he says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That that's the source of life. The word is more sure, more real, more trustworthy than any other source of knowledge. It's more reliable than your experience. You might say, ah, I've had this tough time in life. I've had this this difficult experience. I've, I've seen this, and I can't quite square it with God's word. Can I have the audacity to suggest to you, God's word stands in judgment even over your experience, not the other way around. Because our experiences can mislead us. I can have a bad meal one evening, a really nasty piece of cheese, and be, uh, my thinking can be all over the place the next day. I think it was Augustine who said that you can be totally distracted and your mind wander all over the place because there's a fly in your study. You're trying to swat it not been irritated by a fly and lost your train of thought. Human experience is changeable and fallible. Look at yourself this year. If you were here last year, how much have you changed since last year? Do you look any different? Have you learned anything? Something happened to you that you've experienced that's changed your perspective? I would think so. Because we learn and we grow and we develop. But God... Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we reject his word as light and life, we're transferring the idea somewhere else. There's all kinds of counterfeit lights out there, my friends. And this is what the Gospel of John is warning us against. Counterfeit light. Imitation light. Long life fluorescent light. As opposed to the light of life. And human beings since the fall have essentially been trying to manufacture their own counterfeit types of life. Now, light. Now, I'm going to do something very quickly with you now that uh, I hope will at least stick. It's very uh, simplistic. It's brief, but I hope it will be helpful to you. Every one of your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, whatever they believe about reality falls into one of three basic understandings of the world. We can call the first the pagan type, we can call the second the pantheistic type, and we can call the third the biblical theistic type. Then the pagan idea of life, the one which um, Michael has been talking to us about in the mornings, uh, in the Roman world, for example, but it persists with us in all kinds of forms today, is a belief in the continuity of being. That is, there is one continuous eternal reality in which all that is, is dependent upon or is developed out of the natural universe, some kind of primeval chaos. If you look back at Babylonian literature, Greek literature, what they believed was that even the gods themselves evolved out of some primeval, watery 
chaos. That there is a basic continuity of being to all things. We've just moved up in one chain. The Greeks called it a chain of being. Today, really, the doctrine is evolution. The doctrine of evolution is a very old doctrine. It goes back, right back to, the, to ancient Babylon. It's manifested itself in different forms, but that's the basic idea. In some forms of paganism, you have a duality of matter and form. I mentioned this on Sunday. Have you heard of yin and yang and, uh, in, in Taoism or the idea of two opposing forces of good and evil or darkness and light? It's a pagan concept where impersonal principles essentially were at war and actually produced the creation. These are personified in much ancient mythology as gods that are given uh, anthropomorphic qualities, but the basic idea was that somehow they were in conflict and then out of their conflict was created the world of matter. But in this concept, the true light, the source of infallibility and authority rests in this idea of this process of becoming and of change. You know, uh, Darwin, of course, believed that the process of evolution was moving people upward towards some sort of state of perfection. The evolutionists have changed their mind about that now. Um, and it's probably wise to have done so. In fact, uh, genet geneticists now tell us that we've, we've, we've reached the zenith of our ability to evolve because the human gene pool is deteriorating. Just look at your neighbor. Um, it, it, the copying mistakes are building up in our genes which means that there can only be a downward movement. Scripture makes that absolutely clear in any case. But this notion is that somehow, the, <clears throat> as life developed in this, this uh, totemistic way, developed from the simple to the more complex, and then people became rational somehow, that rationality itself, that man's reason, then ultimately and finally embodied in the collective reason, the state, is infallible. Do you know the communists actually used the term infallibility for the communist party? The infallibility of the party. The idea is the infallibility of the mind of man and his reason, the existential moment. The moment cannot be wrong. The pantheistic view, on the other hand, posits again a continuity of being, but here, everything, all it is, is a subdivision of the divine, of God. Now, when I use the word God, don't misunderstand that and start thinking of the being of God of Scripture, the personal God of Scripture. No, this is an impersonal principle. And that creation is essentially just an emanation of its being. Pantheism means all is God. So you're a part of the divine, and you're a part of the divine, and everything's a part of the divine. It's just the slices of the divine. All you need in this concept of reality is realization, self-realization. Now you can go into, just in case you think this is remote and abstract, see some of you looking at me blankly, you can walk into pretty much any airport today and pick up Numerous books of pop literature on self-realization and the God within and so forth. And 
you know, centering this and feng shui that. And it's all about this notion of the divine. And the route to infallibility in the pantheistic worldview is it's not, think, it's not rationality. Logic is irrelevant. That's part of the veil of illusion. The goal, the route, I should say, is the rejection of ordinary experience. Infallibility is found in mystical experience. The mystical experience is infallible. It can't lie. This is nirvana. It's enlightenment. It's this realization of the oneness of being. So the source of infallibility becomes self-realization, the God within. This, is, this has become pop culture in the West now, but it's pantheistic. Unfortunately, it creeps onto Christian shelves in various forms of psychological gospels. The result in these types of thinking is that Scripture as a revelation from a creator God outside of nature is by definition impossible. Ever wondered why you struggle to reach a non-believing friend who's got an evolutionary worldview, a pagan worldview? Or your friend who's into Buddhism or whatever? Well, it's because by definition, as they think about the world, if they have thought about it, the idea of revelation from God is itself impossible by definition. There is no God outside of creation. Creation is either a subdivision of the divine or everything that is is a product of nature. And nature is, again, just a personification. You know, we talk about nature did this. Oh, Mother Nature did that. Oh, Mother Nature's angry today. We give will and purpose and mind to impersonal. They give process, uh, mind, will, and purpose to impersonal ideas and processes. But they're not impersonal according to Scripture. We can talk about God doing this and acting in this way because he's a person. People act and think and will. This means that uh, any text in the context of pantheism, let's take Buddhism, which is so popular among non-believers today because it's basically atheism, uh, Dr. Livingstone, in his book, The Anatomy of the Sacred, said this. Listen carefully. The Buddha thus offers many means to the one goal of the cessation of suffering. The means may even contradict one another, but they all retain their status as sacred scripture so, as long as, they, so long as they lead the individual to enlightenment. The text itself is not authoritative, but only insofar as it is tr a true means to the goal. It is teaching... And not the text or teacher that is authoritative. In other words, if you're reading the dandy or the beano or hello and you get enlightenment, that's sacred. That's text. That's scripture for you. So the whole notion of history, authority, and truth is irrelevant and meaningless in such a worldview. And so you see immediately why the Christian faith is unique. When people say to you, but what about all those other revelations? You want me to believe in Jesus, but what about all these other revelations? Your first question should be, what revelations? There are no other revelations. It was Westerners who gave pagan and pantheistic texts the terms Bible or Scripture. They've never conceived of them as such. They are the writings of philosophers and poets 
and thinkers striving for enlightenment. They are not God revealing himself in history. There are no other revelations, friends. This is it. Except the copycats since, like Islam and Mormonism and so forth, who are morphing, copycatting, aping Christianity. Only the God of Scripture, this word, gives us an infallible revelation because only he is personal and transcendent. The common concept then of infallibility today that you and I most encounter is the authority of the expert, and they're paraded onto our television screens all of the time. The authority of the expert before whom we must bow, especially the scientists, the modern priests of our age, who will solve all of man's problems and deal with everything, even death itself. And they espouse essentially these experts in the existential moment that experience, human experience and human thinking is the source of infallibility. So you have two basic concepts of authority and light. In pantheism, experience is the source of light. In paganism, human reason, the autonomous mind is the source of light. In Christianity, it's the personal God of creation perfectly manifest in his word. And if you think, well, I can't think of anybody who believes in that kind of uh, infallibility of the pagan type or the pantheistic type, well, do you not have any friends who consult their horoscopes? If you go to Toronto for the uh, Spiritist Festival, you will see hundreds and hundreds of people packed into the streets, getting their palms read and so on and so forth. What do you think that is? It's paganism. People maybe haven't thought things through in the way that I'm delineating them this evening, but this is the basic idea. The basic idea of the authority and infallibility of the rational expert came with the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And friends, just think about this for a moment. Michael was encouraging us to think about words this morning and their meaning. Who do you think called the recovery and prospering of Greek rationalism in the context of a largely Christian Europe, the Enlightenment? Everybody else was in darkness, you see. They were Christians. They were dependent on scripture and they needed new light a new source of light so there was enlightenment you see humanists gave that period of history the term the enlightenment who do you think coined the term the dark ages for christian europe rather than the medieval period just because it was before the renaissance the recovery again of greek philosophical thinking these words are important Let me come to the point now. We're in a world that rejects the word of light and life. We're increasingly in a context in Canada that rejects the word of light and life. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And we see people all around substituting these counterfeit lights, a counterfeit source of infallibility that may be described as the unconscious, as in Sigmund Freud, consult your dreams. That's the source of infallibility. That's how you interpret life and reality. It's all in your dreams. 
Or it might be the historical process, or it might be the infallible moment as in existentialism, or the state, or the expert. But one way or another, they lead always to darkness, and in the end, death. When we boil it down, the question for us this evening, and the question I want to encourage you to think about and to challenge your non-believing friends with, is who speaks the certain word, the infallible word for you? living in a time when the Word of God, even in ostensibly evangelical circles, is being denied. We're told that we don't know what orthodoxy is, that it's an evolving concept. Maybe, maybe the Word of God is a shared project. Maybe light's a shared project between God and man. Maybe we can just sort of say, God, now here's a couple of suggestions about marriage. Here's a couple of suggestions about sexuality. Here's a couple of suggestions about the authority of Scripture, and let's make this a collective project. Let's all take a vote and decide. Let's have a moratorium here and a moratorium here on the authority of Scripture, on issues that have become difficult in our time. You see, if all things were made through him, as John says, the only kind of word man can speak, if he doesn't speak in terms of this, And consistent with this, he can only speak a word of negation. You know what negation is? It's just a denial. Doubt and denial. If all things were made through him and you're not the creator, you're a creature, all you can do is negate everything that God does and says. So you know the existentialists like Camus and Sartre and others, Camus in particular, said that there's the way of grace or there's the way of rebellion. That's it. He was an atheist. There's the way of grace or the way of rebellion. And many of these existentialist thinkers killed themselves. They committed suicide because they said the only way we can truly assert our freedom is to take away death itself from God and we'll determine when we're going to die. It's negation. It's never speaking life. It's only denials and doubts. The God of Scripture, though, the Word of God, Christ the Word, can only ever speak an infallible word because nothing conditions Him. You see, I can speak this evening, and I can make mistakes. I may have made some this evening. I'm not aware of that I have, but I may have done. And I may be corrected by one of you learned people afterwards. He says, oh, I think you got that bit wrong, or you may have quoted that wrong. And I can be corrected because I'm not infallible. Far from it. You just talk to Jenny. Some of you heard her speak this afternoon. I'm not infallible. We all make mistakes because I'm a conditioned being. Many things have conditioned me. My upbringing, you know, I look in the mirror some days and I think I'm starting to look like my dad. And oh no, I'm sounding like him now. Because I was conditioned, I was shaped. Things conditioned me. But you see, God is unconditioned. Nothing defines him outside of himself. That's why when Moses says, who shall I say is sending me to Pharaoh? God says, I am that I am. I'm beyond definition. You can't define me. I'm not conditioned by anything or anyone. And therefore, when God speaks, He can't make a mistake. He doesn't make an error. He created all things. He sustains all things. He governs all things. This book is either completely infallible and it's the Word of God, or it's a hodgepodge of the, reach, of the, the thinking and the, the best philosophical reflection that the writers of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament could come up with at the time. 
filled with mistakes and errors, as fallible as I am. You've got that, right? You understand what I'm saying. It's either or. Because the God of Scripture, by definition, can only speak an infallible word. This is a universe of total meaning. And he's the unchanging word. And so when we deny the infallibility of the word or try and speak our own word, it becomes an uncertain word. And whenever you're in the presence of somebody who starts questioning this and that in Scripture and, oh, I've got this new idea about this, and maybe, you know, we don't know what orthodoxy is. It's an emerging concept, so on and so forth. Be sure you're in the presence of someone then who actually believes that infallibility is a shared project between God and man. Now, I know there is an issue of interpretation, not denying the reality that the Word of God has to be interpreted correctly. We do that in submission to the Holy Spirit with all the tools that He's given us. Why, do, why are people so resistant? Your neighbors, your friends, your work colleagues, why are they resistant? Unless it's just me who's got friends who are resistant to it. Maybe it is, but you know, I've been working on all kinds of guys on my soccer team on a Friday and been in the team six years now. And even though I am clearly the outstanding player in the squad, um, and one of them does want to be baptized this fall and wants me to marry uh, him to his fiance. Many of them are very resistant. Why? Why would people be so resistant to the light that leads to life? Well, in order for people to free themselves to play God, they have to empty the world of the light that leads to life. You have to... The reason that these things can become so militant and these ideas can become so strongly and forthrightly expressed, the reason there is such hostility is that if man is to be his own God, which is the basic project of fallen man, if we're to believe the Scriptures, that the temptation was you will be as God, knowing good from evil, define it for yourself, then you must eliminate the light that leads to life from the world. Just push it out. Man's word must be replaced, must replace God's word. And man's word is always a word of flux. It's constantly changing. It's one thing today, it'll be something else tomorrow. Oh, but it'll be infallible tomorrow. It'll be infallible for the moment. It's always infallible for the moment because he's exchanging the truth of God, says Paul, for a lie. It's a deliberate exchange. They've exchanged the truth about God, the apostle says, for the lie, denying the creator. And with the disappearance of the light, my friends, always comes a meaningless world. That's always the result. It's the end result of all human thinking always is meaninglessness. That's where we are today in our universities. Oh, you can pretend the world has meaning, make one up for yourself... But you know, young people aren't stupid. They know that that means there's no real meaning. There's no word. There's no logos. There's no meaning in history. No meaning in the text. No meaning in life. Just got to define it and make it up for yourself. And the result when light is denied is that in desperation, all you've got left, there's no meaning, is the desperate quest for power and control. If this is a meaningless world and it's chaos, 
How can we avoid being destroyed by it? We've got to have power. We've got to have control. We've got to control every aspect of our life. Why do people want their rooms arranged in their home according to Feng Shui? They want control. Why do they want to know what their horoscope says? They want control. If there's no word from God in the light, then where do people seek that kind of control? Through darkness. That's what the occult is. You go into blockbusters. What is it now? 60, 70% of the films are supernatural thrillers, occultic films of one sort or another, even mainstream television. People who have um, some, sort of, some kind of ESP, or I don't follow these shows, so uh, I'll get all the names wrong, but you know, people who have some sort of extrasensory perception and they're solving crimes through psychic insight and so forth. Control. How can I control reality and control my world if it's a meaningless one and a chaotic one? Occultism, demonism, chaos cults are epidemic now in our own time. One scholar has summarized it so well. He says, since this creative energy in a godless universe is below in the primeval energy of evolution, man must then look below to the primitive, magical, demonic and the immoral for power and energy against the hovering demons of darkness and death. He has no protection except a fleeting assertion of power. Thus, every age of unbelief is also an era of power politics, tyranny, and brutal death. Men seeks to substitute power for meaning and dominion, and his use of power is murderous. You look at the atheistic regimes of the 20th century, and you see that. But you know, power is never gained through playing with the occult become a prisoner and a slave to these things. It's never gained through sexual immorality or perversion or fertility ritualism. People are just depersonalized by these things that they think is going to give them some kind of experience that will give them meaning in their lives. Only in Christ as the light that leads to life do we have this sure and certain word where Jesus says that even if you give someone a cup of cold water in his name, It brings with it reward because it bears significance. That's why Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Everything vested with meaning. So that Jesus could say, my father knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. There is not a meaningless event, not a meaningless happening in the universe but to turn from this life and light leads only to death and darkness. One of my most referred to texts these days is Proverbs 8.36, which so summarizes this, where wisdom personified says, but he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. To choose life means to love God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commands. It's the way of life. It's the way of rejoicing. It's the way of health. It's the way of salvation. In your own time, go and read Deuteronomy 30, 14 through 20, and see what God says about life in terms of obedience to Him. Yet we're living in a time when people fear death as much as ever before. 
And ironically, when people get gripped with a fear of death and the futility of life and its meaninglessness, one of the things that they do and turn to is suicide. Did you know that the second leading cause of death amongst young people between 15 and 24 in Canada today is suicide? Suicide rates are incredibly high in our time. In pagan cultures in antiquity, suicide was sometimes seen as heroic. The modern world has given us an obsession with death. Suicidal tendencies have come with the decline of Christianity, grounded in a loss of will to live. One researcher in the late 1930s observed in the West that various forms of psychosis are becoming stronger and more intense within the cities. Now, he observed this in the late 1930s. And he says that this is what modern life is producing, hypersensitivity, weariness, depression, irritability, unhappiness, sadness. And this commentator writes, listen carefully to this, my friends. Is there a God? We do not know. Is there a soul? We do not know. Is there life after death or not? We do not know. Is there any purpose in life? We do not know. Why am I living? We do not know. Am I living? Do I really exist? We do not know. What then do we know? Is it possible for us to know anything at all? We do not know. And this systematic we do not know is called science. And people clap their hands above their heads exultantly. The progress of the human mind is incomprehensible. We no longer need faith in God, for science has observed that water boiling in a pot lifts the lid. You get the irony, right? We think that because we've made some observations and analysis that we can kick God out of the universe. Because of this uniform, I do not know. That is always the result of a denial of the word of life and light. We do not know. In the modern world of madness, then, we chase happiness, and what we catch is death, and people become sick of everything, sick of themselves, sick of others, sick of politics, sick of learning. And in the weariness that sets in, people retreat into alcoholism, drugs, sexual promiscuity, and so forth. This is always the result of the denial of the light that leads to life. It's amazing how obsessed with death we've become. Next week, I'm going on to a show again to discuss a recent case of voluntary euthanasia in Europe. There have been a number of these cases now where people just decide, you know what, while I'm still you know, fairly physically fit and so forth, I'm just going to go with my friend or my spouse or whatever, and we're going to kill ourselves so that we don't have to suffer in any way the derelictions of aging. And this is going to be a major discussion, I predict, coming up in Canada very soon, the nature of euthanasia. We already kill the young with unremitting consistency, with the most abortionistic culture since ancient Rome. And yet, the irony is, while we're killing the old and killing the young, we let murderers walk. Don't you find that ironic? 
But never before have we seen crime as such an irrelevant matter. The value of life has become totally irrelevant in our time. And uh, as we buy into the myth of overpopulation as well, if laws about euthanasia are brought in in this country, and Canada does pride itself in being incredibly progressive and forward-thinking in these areas, what's to stop the state eventually setting a time when everybody's life must be terminated? Because who's going to pay the bill for all the welfare? Working population is shrinking. More and more people aging, needing provision, We no longer think that it's our responsibility to take care of our parents, so the state has to do it. You think that these things are mythological, my friends? Well, just look back 70 years, 60 years, see what was going on in Germany, see what was going on in North America and what we were saying about uh, evolutionary eugenics. There is no true life by bread alone, but only by God's sovereign grace through Jesus Christ. And he is the path of life. He is the way of life. In ancient Rome, when Rome was destroyed, when the city of Rome was destroyed, the first thing that the people of Rome did was write to the empire, emperor and ask him to reinstitute de- uh, bread and circuses down at the Colosseum. And we're in a time today where we're interested in entertaining ourselves with some of the most bizarre things. We want endless provision from the state, and we want to be entertained. God calls us to take responsibility. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jeremy quoted it. In the face of Christ, there is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The alternative of light and life is death and darkness. Here's my questions for you as we take a few minutes of questions. What counterfeit lights may have been influencing you that perhaps you haven't noticed? Are there any? Counterfeit light coming in as a competitor to the light of Christ. What areas in your life perhaps still hidden that Christ wants to bring to light? Where are we lacking the experience of true life and rejoicing in all its fullness. John 10.10, I've come that you might have life in its fullness. And are we walking in obedience to Christ in terms of his commands as the way of life and the way of light? That's the uh, starkness of the choice that John's prologue gives to us. Are there any questions? Uh Yeah, now that would be the yeah, that, uh, the, um, the, fir- the first few verses of the chapter of, of John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery, are, uh, you will find in probably a notation in your margin that this passage is not found in the original, or the oldest, I should say, and most reliable uh, extant manuscript uh, copies that we have. And uh, scholars have disputed about the authenticity of this particular passage. And uh, absolutely truthfully, they have a very good point on this one. And uh, many evangelical scholars, and you may find it even in your uh, New Testament there, in brackets. Many uh, translators put it in brackets. That the account of the woman caught in the act of adultery, we cannot be certain that that particular account 
is in the original uh, New Testament. Um, my personal conviction about that particular passage uh, is that it is doubtful. Uh, but I, you see, the, when we talk about the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture, we are, of course, referring to the original autographs, and we do know that we know that we have 99.7% where we know exactly what the rendering was. There are a few places, 0.3%, where there are slight variations and a couple of places where there may have been a later addition. Um, I find the account of the woman caught in the act of adultery in terms of the way uh, God's law is dealt with there also, I think, uh, leads to a, a questioning of the validity of uh, that passage. But I could be wrong, because I am fallible, but I would say the majority of New Testament scholars today would say that the passage is questionable. It may not be original. I probably can't say anything beyond that. Indeed. And it's, uh, it, can we really understand what God said to Moses, I am that I am? Uh, I think the um, yes and no is the answer to that. I think it's the, the, one of the most important things that we have to understand about the Christian faith is it gives us an absolute distinction between the creator and the creature. Uh, unlike all pagan worldviews and pantheistic worldviews, which gives us, as I talked about, this continuity of being that we all share, a, we're on a common scale of being with the gods. Scripture tells us that there is uncreated being, the being of God, and then there is created being, the universe and everything that's in it, including us. And that that is an, is a, is an unbridgeable gulf. You see, man is always trying to deify himself in paganism. In Christianity, the God of Scripture becomes a man. He condescends. God the Son. So, all we can say about that statement is there is mystery in it because what God is saying there, to the best of our ability to grasp it, I think, is that I am beyond definition. I am the unconditioned one. You can't define me. You see, when we name something, we're categorizing it, we're defining it. Names uh, in the West um, used to mean a lot more than they do now. Kind of these days, you know, we will often, if we're choosing a name for a child, we'll get one of those kids' names books, sort of flick through it. Oh, I like that one. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's, you know, that's a bit common, and so forth. Um, we don't see names as they were originally given, but if you take a common name in, in uh, England, for example, Smith, well, why did somebody get that name? Well, it's because they were a smith, a blacksmith. Uh, names often related to what you did. They were a source of definition. Adam named all the animals, so he was the first uh, zoologist. He taxonomically identified the animals. And, he, and naming was always, in, always involved in the, in the naming of something is the issue of authority. You exercise authority when you name. So God often renames his servants, doesn't he, in Scripture? Abraham becomes Abraham, the father of many. Uh, uh, Jacob, the wrestler, becomes um, uh, Israel, prince with God. Uh, Simon becomes Peter, which means rock. So we can't give God a name in that sense and therefore define him. He must disclose his character to us in the way that he is. In his, that's why a revelation for Christians is historical revelation. So God reveals himself in terms of his relationship with his people Israel. He says, this is who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Because they could understand, this God related to these people in this way. He's a God who's faithful to his covenant. He's a provider, etc., etc., etc. But God, in his being, is incomprehensible to us. He's beyond definition among churches. Yeah. That's a very, very good uh, question. And um, if, sorry, yeah. Uh, the Third Reich being an inherently atheistic movement, which it absolutely was, um, there are those who have sought to say, well, Hitler was a Catholic and so forth. He vilified Christianity repeatedly, considered it the most in Mein Kampf. He said that Christianity is the most fatal and seductive lie that ever existed. Um, but he was very clever, and he knew how to use and manipulate the church. And uh, without going into great length about this, um, a lot of the German Christians, because they were so influenced by the Lutheran understanding of the relationship between church and state, thought that, well, you, you go along with what the state says. The powers that be are ordained of God. He's come to power. Uh, he seems to be wanting to prosper the, the German nation. And so uh, many churches, many Christians were either silent, and they actually, it comes back to the issue that uh, Michael was talking about with ancient Rome, that the issue for the Romans was not that they particularly had uh, an immediate hostility to Christian doctrine. They knew how, like the Persians before them, knew how to absorb foreign religions. The issue was that you had to be licensed. And what uh, Hitler did was um, through, he had his spies everywhere in the churches, hundreds of them um, uh, were out, the Gestapo, and, and uh, were spying in the churches. Hundreds of German pastors were arrested who expressed Concerns or reservations about the Nazi party. Hundreds were arrested. Very famous ones, of course, like Bonhoeffer. Um, and so what he uh, managed to do was uh, scare and frighten many Christians. Others he arrested, and others just uh, bought into the notion that, well, the, uh, the powers that be are ordained of God. The church's role is a spiritual role, and uh, we don't interfere. Um, and there certainly is... Uh, um, Without being judgmental of Christians of another era in another country, there certainly is uh, a case to be answered by the church as to why it was appeared to be so passive during that time. There were, as I say, hundreds of faithful pastors who were arrested and thrown into prisons and concentration camps and so forth. Um, but there were many who were not. They were silent, and uh, they accepted state licensing. And that's what um, Hitler was determined to do. The first thing he did, by the way, was remove religious education from the schools, replaced it with an education concerning German nationalism. Uh, we've done that in America and in Canada. You, you, when, you, when you destroy the, uh, the basis of Christian education in the, in the... And then there was the Nazi youth organization. So there was some complicit... Uh, I'm not denying that some were compromised. I think there... There are some untold stories about faithful German Christians. But there was, I think, that the root of it was in a Lutheran view of the relationship between church and state. That they are totally separate spheres and the two should not cross over. It looks like you want to comment. If I was speaking to a Jewish audience tonight, well, I would have to be, a, I'd have to be an expert in the history of the German church, which I'm not, for start off. Um, uh, I have read uh, one very fascinating book called from, from Darwin to Hitler. I guess my question to you is, what, what point is it that you're trying to communicate here? Are you trying to, are you trying to say that, uh, um, are you arguing that the Third Reich was Christian? 
Or are you just saying that the, that the, that the so-called Christians in Germany were, were entirely or largely silent on the issue of the persecution of the Jews? What is it that you're trying to communicate? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Well, um, you, it's certainly impossible to make the case that the Third Reich was in any way, shape, or form Christian. You can certainly make the case that a large portion of the German church was silent or compromised on this issue. But you can't overlook stories like the Ten Booms, for example, in, uh, of course, that's in Holland. But there were similar stories of, if you, even if you watch, uh, Michael Haken this morning referred to Valkyrie, and you can see that there were uh, Christians who were in the, in German, among the German peasantry uh, who did shelter Jews. There was a consequence to it, of course. Um, so anti-Semitism has been a reality throughout Europe. It still is a reality in Europe. And um, I would agree with you that the, the German church did not stand up as it should uh, for the Jewish people. I'm saying to you that I think some of the causes of that was a faulty understanding of the relationship between church and state. I would say we have the same problem in this country today. Why is this country deteriorated to the degree that it has? Let's look at ourselves for a minute. Why have laws changed on such critical issues? I would say that one of the problems is that we've basically taken hands off the public sphere, the civil sphere, the cultural sphere, and said we deal with spiritual issues. The world, that's the realm of darkness and the devil. And the Lutheran approach to church and state took that view, and I think that made German Christians susceptible to a failure to wake up to what was going on, as well as some, uh, frankly, just blindness, uh, willful blindness. Yeah. So we're running out of time, so um, I'm fascinated by that. But if you, do you have a quick question? No. There is, there is room for theological growth and development, absolutely, because if we believe in the sovereignty of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, that uh, he will lead us into truth. We can deepen and develop our understanding, and I think we can look back at the history of the church and say, gosh, that was a blindness there. That, well, I look back at Augustine's teaching on marriage, and I say, gosh, that was a mistake because it wasn't biblical. And as we reflect on our ex- experience in the light of Scripture, tradition in the light of Scripture, I'm sure you're familiar with this as a theological student, uh, we seek to deepen and strengthen our understanding of Scripture. But orthodoxy, as, we've, as you've identified, is a benchmark to which we return. And within the boundaries of orthodoxy, we seek to deepen and develop our understanding. So no, we don't believe in a, a primitivism that says, you know, a lot of the contemporary church has been taken up with a kind of primitivism that says, we've got to get back to the early church. We've got to get back to everything the early church was doing. Well, look what Corinth was doing. You know, uh, the early church was making a lot of mistakes. We've learned things. The, the church through history has learned lessons. Nazi Germany should be a lesson. Uh, for the church. So we are, we should be, as God's people, learning lessons and going deeper into our understanding of God's word. But I would argue that if you suddenly hear somebody teaching something that hasn't been taught for 1900 or 2000 years in the history of the church, you're probably likely to be fairly on, uh, you can pretty much assume that what you're hearing is erroneous. You might hear somebody developing a theme and you think, I haven't seen that before. But, uh, for example, I would argue that the popular dispensationalism of the 19th century, which nobody had preached in the history of the church or any of the great divines in the church had taught, was um, erroneous. And so we do have to be on our guard for things that seem incredibly original uh, if we're not lining them up and testing them against Scripture. Scripture is the norming norm, and that's what we come back to. I've got to be faithful to the time limits that were set, which was half past, so um, we will pick more questions up tomorrow.
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.